Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Canolian, co-founder and CEO of Modern Light, a tech-enabled insurance brokerage that's raised over $15 million in funding. Michael, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks so much for having me. How did I do in your last name? I was a bit nervous as I was staring that down just now. <laughs> so the mnemonic is to say, all y'all, so Kunyalian. So the eyes are wise. Oh, got it, got it. Okay, sounds close then. You're fine. You're fine. Perfect. <laughs> Now, we'd love to begin with just a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a co-founder and CEO of Modern Life. Prior to starting Modern Life, I've been in the fintech space for a number of years. I was part of the leadership team at a company called Cover Wallet, which was a technology-enabled brokerage in the property and casualty space. Originally started there as a product manager focused on, you know, our checkout app platform and integrations. Ended up moving to a general manager role, started a business line marketing towards insurance agents, and then played a role in the sale to Aon and sort of, you know, helped incubate a number of businesses after that acquisition. In my prior life, I uh, had a stint in consulting at McKinsey, mostly working across financial services firms and technology companies and then have an engineering sort of background before that. And would 10-year-old Michael be surprised that you're a founder and CEO today, or did you always you know, kind of expect that you'd eventually start a company and want to go down the path of entrepreneurship? It's a really interesting question. You know, I um, come from like a line of entrepreneurs. You know, my father started a number of businesses in his life, you know, my grandfather before that. But I really kind of caught the bug later. I was like, oh, that feels hard. <laughs> like, I'm not sure I really want to dive in head first into that. but really love technology, you know, from an early age. And originally when I went to college, like wanted to be an astronaut, went into aerospace engineering. And, you know, I think if there was more innovation at the time on the aerospace side, very well could have stayed there. But, you know, over the last, you know, 10, 15 years have just been like really captivated by what's been going on in internet technology and, and sort of the ability to really breathe life into really impactful businesses through that and got really just excited by the potential to be able to, you know, kind of combine the tech orientation with my uh, business toolkit that I developed and and be able to really create something. Nice. That's super cool. And now two questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as a leader. First one is what CEO do you admire and what do you admire? About? Yeah. Tim Cook, I think is a really interesting CEO in that you know, he's a real operator at heart, but has, you know, kind of learned the full like innovation, inspiration, how to, you know, really build along such a great legacy from Steve Jobs. And I've just been really impressed from like, you know, the person who could tell you exactly how many iPhones came off the line that day, also really digging in and like making sure they're like new products are successful and they're able to really keep building differentiation into the model. And I've been super impressed by that. Nice. That's such a good call out. It's also, I think, so fascinating that Apple has continued to just build the amazing products that they do long after Steve Jobs died. I think it's pretty impressive they've continued that on. 
every product they've made, I just love them and I don't know why, but they're just so good. Yeah, I think it's the best compliment you can give to a company when their product feels indispensable. And uh, they've been able to do that across more than one product, which I think is really special. Yeah, absolutely. What about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you? And I always say this can be you know, one of the classic business books, but what we really typically find the most interesting are the personal books that have really influenced how you think and how you view the world. So it's a bit cliche, but, you know, it was really inspired by the Lean Startup. And especially, you know, when I read it, I was in a place in my career when I was transitioning from serving big companies at McKinsey and understanding how to like use a lot of resources to do very big things and, you know, flipping the script and saying, how can we be hypothesis driven and use as few resources as possible to get to as much insight and outcome on an approach before then pouring into more resources, I thought was a really just like interesting insight and, and certainly, you know, in the businesses and now companies I've started, you know, has been a, an approach that we've really sought to use across the formation. Nice. Yeah. The principles from that book really are timeless. It's such a good read. Now let's switch gears and let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So can you just take me back to the the early days and let's talk about the origin story? Yeah. The original inspiration for Modern Life actually came through my own experience of buying life insurance for my family. So after my children were born, like, you know, millions of others, I went out and, you know, sought to purchase life insurance and was just floored by how challenging it was barely understood what I was buying, tons of friction in the underwriting process, things like in-person medical exam to get blood and urine drawn, like an hour-long phone interview, had to do like 50 pages of paper application forms, and just like a litany of like signatures and disclosures, logins, and you know, the whole thing took months, you know, for someone who's reasonably young, healthy, not buying an absurd amount of insurance. But as challenging as that was, was really just like inspired by the potential to transform that through technology and in particular, you know, kind of leveraging some of the toolkit I had built, you know, building across carriers, advisors, and clients and, and building really contemporary integrated technology solutions for them. And, you know, really thought there was just a huge opportunity to make an impact in the space. Yeah, I've gone through a similar journey with life insurance, and it's such a miserable and painful experience. So why do you think that is? Yeah, we can't be the only ones. Like you said, millions of other people do this. I'm sure there's other companies that are aware of this issue. But why is it not changed and why is it so bad today? It's a great question. I think part of it is just, you know, one, carriers need a lot of data to really underwrite risks well. Everyone's complex. Everyone's fairly different. And, you know, really being able to like understand the unique picture of you, your family history, what's going on just makes a big difference in, you know, underwriting outcomes. The second issue is that a lot of that data actually lives in your body. So the way of getting it is somewhat invasive and they actually like end up having to send someone to you, at least in the old way of doing it. And in, you know, getting that becomes high friction. And then I think the third reason is you know, carriers are, you know, really on the hook for these risks, you know, over a really long period of time. It's sort of different in property and casualty insurance where I don't like the risk, I don't have to renew them. You know, I take that exposure for less than a year. Whereas, you know, life insurance could be your whole lifetime. 
And, you know, I think that's bred a lot of conservatism at the carrier level. But that being said, you know, carriers have gotten better over time. And, you know, if you look at prices for life insurance today versus what they were 15, 20 years ago, they've gotten a lot better. And it's just because people have gotten better at underwriting. We can pull in more sources of data. You know, we're not just taking everything at face value. We're able to check prescriptions and driving history and other factors that can really, you know, create a a richer perspective into like underwriting a specific risk. And if you look at the business model, you're not selling to consumers, right? You're selling to the actual advisors. Yeah. So one of the things that I think really makes us unique from a technology perspective is we are a hundred percent focused on advisors, you know, life insurance and other highly, um, underwritten financial products like, you know, long-term care and disability, you know, really are, are just challenging things to understand. And, you know, there's a classic role for an advisor who can help you understand the sort of how your financial needs and goals can map against, you know, an array of different products, help shepherd you through this very complex underwriting process to be there for you to help reassess over time and make sure that you're getting the value that you need. And, you know, today over 90% of the market is distributed through advisors. That share is growing, not shrinking, um, which I think is surprising to a lot of people. And, you know, over the last 150 years that the life insurance industry has been around, like advisors have very much been the bedrock and we have a, a lot of conviction, you know, that's going to persist over the next 150 years. And we'd much rather arm the army than try to take them on. Early on, did you, you know, have any thoughts about going direct to consumers here, or did you always know it was going to be more of a B2B play? You know, it's really fascinating. When I joined CoverWallet, where I was before, we only had a direct to consumer business in the US. And I very much started the agent channel and got to see those comparisons. And then, you know, after Aon acquired us, then got to see a number of like larger and more mature, primarily agent distributed businesses. And you know, really think that there's a need for some direct-to-consumer in the part of the market that's very simple, very transactional, you know, not complex. And, you know, in some types of insurance, like that's okay. And there's organizations people trust. And if I'm spending $100 buying something, you know, that might be okay. You know, for life insurance, it's very complex in terms of products. It's very consequential in terms of the impact it has on people's families. Like you're not insuring your cell phone, like you're insuring your life. You're insuring that your kids can live the life they want. And given that obligation, just had a lot of conviction in the advisor driven model. And, you know, from day one, this was something we had a ton of conviction around and, and really sought to build. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And what's the life like? today for the average insurance advisor and how open to new technology are they? It seems like, you know, this could represent change for them. And in my head, which could be wrong, I imagine them as being a little bit afraid of technology and afraid of change. Is that accurate or how would you describe their reaction to technology? I would say advisors today 
have a really challenging time in terms of how they're able to conduct their business where you know the options given to them are mostly either you use paper which is very clunky you know try emailing a client a 50-page document asking them to print it out and fill it out and mail it back to you it's not great and you know impacts conversion impacts cycle time for deals impacts the types of clients you're able to serve and then you know, the other option they have is using relatively legacy technology of which, you know, there's solutions out there, but they're largely what I would call like point solutions or features. You know, there might be something you use for term quoting. There might be something you use for medical underwriting. There might be something you use for permanent life insurance case design, something different for applications, something different for agency management, something different for commissions. And it's, you have to manage this constellation of, you know, these legacy point solutions. And in a lot of ways, the pandemic really changed how advisors viewed, you know, their own delivery of life insurance. And, you know, I like to say that, you know, the pandemic really resulted in the digital transformation of industry almost against its will, where kitchen table in-person conversations couldn't happen anymore. And those became Zoom calls. You know, the 50-page paper application that you would bring in your briefcase don't work so well over email. And, you know, those became digital applications. And then, you know, the underwriting model where I'm going to poke you with a needle and try to get all your data the old fashioned way started to really not work for a big slice of the population. And in many cases, you know, clients can get good competitive quotes without needing to, you know, have a medical exam. And, you know, advisors very much came, which I think carriers did around the same time that, oh, this digital thing is not something of the distant future. It's really something of the present and the present future. And, you know, we, we, in a way sort of saw that as a moment, which, you know, really, I think has caused the most rapid level of technology adoption and change in, you know, the decades of the past. And uh, have you read the book, The Fixer by Bradley Tusk? Or do you know about Bradley Tusk? No, not yet. I'll, I'll send you a link after the call, but um, I just finished his book. He was like the regulatory PR guy for Uber, FanDuel, Tesla, and uh, Lemonade. And I just finished reading it. It's really good. And his whole thing is about you know, saving startups that are facing very difficult regulatory environments and, and navigating that whole world. And he was talking a lot about Lemonade and his work with Lemonade and some of the challenges that they faced. So for you, from a regulatory perspective, is this a disruptive model? Like, do you have a lot of regulatory headaches and like, do you have to go and push for regulators to change or is it more straightforward because you're not going direct to consumer? It's a great question. You know, certainly there's less of a regulatory burden on us as a brokerage than there would be if we were a carrier like Lemonade and actually responsible for paying that claim and taking the balance sheet risk. That being said, you know, we did make the decision to start in New York City um, where we're headquartered and most of our team is. And, you know, New York City is a challenging jurisdiction to do life insurance. Many of the D2C players, if you see, you know, they're live in 49 states and the state they're not not around is, is in New York. But I think we actually have benefited from having the higher regulatory burden in a few ways. Like one, it really makes it so even not in New York, you know, everything we're doing is ironclad and, you know, we're giving the kind of belt and suspenders approach towards dealing with risk and customer data and encryption and all these things. The second benefit, which is, I think, a little bit more salient, is that 
you know, we don't represent a product. We don't represent a carrier. We're not trying to sell you our thing. Mm -hmm. And most of financial regulation, if you were to distill it, is around suitability. Like, are you selling the client the right thing for them and at the right value? And, you know, we represent that advisor and their client. And, you know, we're not a life insurance company. We're not an annuity company. We're not a disability company. We want to make sure you have the right product for your financial protection mean. And we're not just, you know, distributing one carrier. Like we have 25 carriers we distribute and, you know, we're impartial. Like we really want to make sure you're getting the best value. And, you know, that's born in better conversion. That's born in better retention. You know, we have market leading conversion retention. And a big part of that is because we're really advocating and on the side of that advisor and the customer. And we talked about the advisor side and how they feel about change. But what about the carrier side? So you mentioned 25 carriers there. Like, do they have to opt in? Do they have to agree to work with you? And what does that general process look like when you're engaging with carriers? Yeah, I think a similar trend has happened uh, on the carrier community as well as with advisors where, you know, they had understood that change was coming and, you know, woke up one morning and discovered that change was happening right now. And, you know, in a lot of ways where the life insurance carrier mix is from a technology adoption is kind of where property and casualty was five or 10 years ago. So that wave is really coming now. And I really, you know, view it as the, you know, role of people like us to really help guide that for carriers, you know, really be the voice of that advisor and that customer in saying, here's what people want. You know, people want to be able to get things at good prices without a lot of hassle and with the security that comes with working with a big firm. And I think that's been an adjustment for a number of these firms that, you know, are 150 years old and, you know, conservative underwriting cultures. But you know, I've certainly been really impressed, certainly around the carriers that we work with and their ability to work with us. And, you know, our goal is very much to innovate on the models that are out there. We don't want to come in and, you know, plant bombs and blow things up and then leave. Like we really want our carrier partners to be very successful for them to understand risk well. And I think that's given them a lot of comfort in working with us and being able to really just take out the friction, take out a lot of the the hassle for customers. And I'd love to talk a little bit about growth now. So are there any numbers that you can share that just highlight some of the the traction and, and adoption that you're seeing with advisors? Yeah. You know, we're working with over a hundred advisors at different stages of the process. Now that number is growing very quickly each month. And, you know, we've seen in particular, we tend to focus on advisors that are a little bit more established and serve, you know, more affluent clientele. And, you know, with that has come, you know, just a, a higher degree to really build out the product and the brokerage experience and the level of, you know, sophistication and rigor of our solutions, which is, you know, really been a big draw, but we're really working towards along the major goals of, of really helping advisors do more deals, do them faster, you know, get clients good value. And I saw on the funding news that it was a $15 million seed round led by Thrive Capital. And I believe it said 10 or 12 unicorn founders there. What do you think those investors are so excited about when they're looking at this opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's just an incredible potential to transform the space. And, you know, it's a $150 billion market, you know, in the distribution layer from an advisor standpoint, you know, there's 
5,000 brokerages in the country that do this on a serious level. And, you know, 4,999 of them are saying the same thing and look the same and sound the same and feel the same. And by really building technology in the space and, and having tight feedback loops with our advisors, you know, we really think that we can build that platform that can, you know, connect advisors to their carriers and clients, and then also just, you know, really provide a differentiated brokerage experience and, and one where, you know, you can get to really big numbers with like 1% market share, and we're aiming for a lot higher than that. And to, you know, do that in five years, not 50, which is the typical round of doing to the market. Yeah, and given it's, uh, I think it's a $150 billion market there, and it's ripe for disruption, I, I have to imagine you're not the only founder who said, hey, let's go and transform this space. So can you just talk us through what the competitive landscape looks like? Yeah, I think most people, you know, that have raised serious capital in the space, you know, I like to say there's been like a billion dollars raised largely in the D2C part of the market, you know, which has really been to try to cut the advisor out. And after learning that that's hard to scale, largely around, you know, turning the advisor into a referral source. You know, some of the D2C players have tried to get into independent advisor distribution have actually pulled out, finding that it's hard. And, you know, a lot of ways for the type of customer that those D2C products were built for, like they're probably okay, right? If I'm just spending $500 on insurance, you know, if it's priced at a 25% premium or if it doesn't have all the features I need, like the ability to convert into a permanent policy or things like that, I might not care, right? It was easy. I skipped the medical exam. But, you know, if you're spending $5,000 or $50,000 of insurance, that becomes pretty challenging. And, you know, you want to, you know, if you're spending $50,000 of insurance, you want it to be backed by Lincoln or Prudential or these really reputable companies that are going to be around when it's time to pay the claim. And, you know, I think that's making it challenging for the DTCs to spread outside of really where they started, which is kind of more transactional, small deals where, where customers might be less price or feature sensitive. And there's a place for it. That's great. And I think they're getting life insurance in the hands of more people. And I think that's a great thing. But I think a lot of the companies, you know, I, I can count, you know, six or seven, they're all kind of in the same sandbox. And it's really just a niche part of the market in a lot of ways. And last question for you, let's zoom out into the future, three years or five years from today, what's the company going to look like? Is the plan to eventually expand outside of life insurance or is the plan just to expand all 50 states and just dominate the life insurance market? What do you have planned for the couple of years? Yeah, I think our goal is really to, you know, continue to serve, you know, top advisors and to, you know, grow that community and really build a community across our advisors from a product line, as you mentioned, you know, we have a lot of depth in permanent term life insurance and are, you know, investing heavily in building, you know, both the brokerage and tech capability for additional product lines like disability insurance, long-term care, and eventually annuities as well. And we really want to be in the position where we're serving, you know, thousands of advisors and millions of customers and making sure that people have the right product for them and are able to get it without the hassle. And instead of making it the ninth thing on your list that you know you should do, but didn't make time for that week, make it the thing that you you get covered and you know can sleep soundly knowing that your family's safe. Amazing. I love it. Michael, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Unfortunately, I'd love to keep you on and just keep asking you questions, but we do have to wrap. But before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? 
Yeah, you can reach us at modernlife.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, educate us on how the life insurance market works and, and talk about everything that you're building. This has been a lot of fun, learned a lot and look forward to having you back on in a couple of years to talk about all the traction you've had. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 